Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Chinny McDonald. I am director of Theos, which is a religion and society think tank. We uh, explore the role of religion in public life um, and we are really interested in theology and religion being relevant to kind of real life and to average people, which is why we're really delighted to have David Baddiel with us. Um, he needs no introduction, but I will just remind you of who he is. David is a comedian, TV presenter, screenwriter and award-winning author. His latest books include Jews Don't Count, How Identity Politics Failed One Particular Identity, and The God Desire, which we are going to be digging into a little bit this afternoon. So the book explores a theme that we're really interested in at Theos at the moment, which is death, uh, mortality, um, and belief in God. Tell us about the journey towards the book. So when I wrote Jews Don't Count, uh, there was a section in that that was quite important in terms of understanding my point about anti-Semitism because I wanted to make the point that anti-Semitism was racism. And it turned out that the easiest way of making people understand that, that anti-Semitism is racism and not what a lot of people think it is, which is religious intolerance, is to point out that I'm an atheist, but the Gestapo would kill me immediately. Uh, in fact, that my great uncle Arno, who was also an atheist, died in the Warsaw Ghetto. So it's a central point about anti-Semitism, uh, which is that the racists are not interested in whether or not you're religious. It's the same now with white supremacists chanting, the Jews will not replace us in Charlottesville. They would not ask me if I kept kosher before setting light to my house. So that was a central point. But then I realized that people, some people, not Jews actually, were confused by the idea of what an atheist Jew was. And I sometimes would explain it comically by saying, I don't believe in God, I believe in Larry David. But then I thought I should say more than that. Although actually, it is a thing. Uh, like It turns out that like 50% of Jews actually sort of identify as Jewish, but also atheists, which is unusual for a, a minority group associated with religion. And I once found out just how much this is true. Like, uh, around here, there's a, there used to be a synagogue in Hampstead. I'm not sure there is anymore, but my, I guess my rabbi, I guess, but my rabbi phoned me up, got my number because, you know, we're in control of the world. And uh, he, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how he got my number. He phoned me up and he, and he said, will you be the person, the sort of local NAF celebrity who comes to light the menorah, the candelabra, the Jews like a Hanukkah outside the synagogue? And I, I didn't really want to do that. So I played what I thought was my trump card. I said, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry to tell you this, Rabbi, but I'm an atheist. And he said, so am I. And I thought, fucking hell, it's really, it's really more widespread than I realized. And, and so from that, from the notion of what is an atheist Jew, I thought, well, I should try and write a book, maybe, that tries to explain my particular type of atheism. Uh, and so that was the God desire. 
So disclaimer, I'm a Christian and I believe in God. So I'm interested in the conversation between, between you know, the two of us. I, I loved your book and Thank I found you. it really moving at times because it speaks to something that is at the heart of humanity, which is this kind of wrestling with our mortality and our finitude. Um, I have brought my whole family here. So my husband and my two kids, my five-year-old, um, nearly six, is kind of obsessed with death at the moment and keeps on coming up with questions. I think because the Queen died when he was you know, starting school, he seems to be kind of much more aware of it. So he asked me questions like, well, if people die, why doesn't God just make a new one? Or do children die? Or all these kind of questions. Yeah. Tell us about why death um, in the book. Why is that the kind of Kind of well, I start the book. It's very that's interesting that you say that your five-year-old is asking you those questions because the book begins uh, with me at six years old praying to Hashem, who is the Hebrew God, because I went to a Jewish primary school, uh, that I don't want to. Well, I want my life to go on in some way after death, and I'm praying. I remember for my parents to still be around, for my best friend Saul Jacob Rosenberg, it was that Jewish school, uh, to still be around, uh, and for my cat, Fomfa, uh, to still be around. She was, that's quite Jewish as well. Uh, anyway, uh, then I, I remember saying to my mum that I was really terrified of this thing, this new thing that I'd found out about called death. And she said, don't worry, uh, death is just like a long sleep from which you never wake up. And since then, I've been a lifelong insomniac. And I have. That's, I actually do think my insomnia can be traced to that. And, and I think that's really fascinating that you, your children, because I can't remember with my own children now, they're 18 and 22, having that moment where they first understood what death was. But I think it's very formative. I mean, I think I do in the book suggest that the thing that really separates us from animals, and we have a lot of different ideas about what separates us from the animals, I think far too many, because I think at heart we are animals, but one of the things is we have an awareness of death. And the awareness of death, I think, is what leads to the creation of stories that outsmart death, right? So the, the, the God design, I mean, I could read a bit. Uh, shall I read a bit? And that will perhaps give you a sense of what I mean by the God desire. So I use um, a couple of um, quotes at the start of this book. Uh, and the quotes are, before the divine kingdom can be established in events, it has to be established in the mind, in the human imagination, Bishop Richard Harris, Thought for the day, 4th of November 2022. And we cherish the illusion that exalts us more than a host of baser truths, Alexandra Pushkin. But then by page five, I'm already saying I didn't really want to use those quotes. The one I wanted to use was this. A close friend once said to me, but don't you want to believe in God? I said, yes, desperately. That's why I know he doesn't exist. It's the opening sentence of the belief system a book by an atheist thinker, Virginia Brooke. But Virginia Brooke is a character of my own devising, who appears in my own play, God's Dice. And using one of my own quotes as an epigraph is just too naff. <laughs> I thought I might get away with it on the basis of this book is about the non-existence of something, so perhaps it would be apt to begin with a quote from a book that doesn't exist. I thought that might be meta and clever enough to carry it through. But in the end, it's just to Alan Partridge a move. <laughs> Nonetheless, the quote does sit at the centre of this essay. Most arguments for atheism are philosophical. Sometimes they tie themselves in knots, grappling with the issue of how you can prove the non-existence of something. 
At heart, they are based on the idea that there is no evidence for God's existence, therefore he doesn't exist, which might seem like atheist job done. But it isn't, as there is no concrete evidence for the existence of, for example, dark matter. Dark matter, which makes up 94% of the bloody universe. No evidence for it at all. It's just a conceit invented by scientists to explain away the large parts of existence that they can't account for, which is problematic from a no-God point of view, as that's basically the same conceit that priests and imams and rabbis have always used God for. My argument is, on the other hand, in a general sense, psychological. It requires an admission, which frankly most atheists, I've noticed, aren't prepared to make, which is, I love God. The idea, that is, of him. For the purposes of this polemic, I'm going to stick with the patriarchal traditional pronoun. Although I believe a modern god would almost definitely have a Twitter bio that ended they stroke them. <laughs> who would not love a superhero dad who chases off death? Some non-believers reading this will think, speak for yourself. It's common amongst atheists in trashing religion also to trash the rewards of religion. Or to be more specific, to disavow the presence in themselves of what religion is there to serve. There is something a little macho in atheism. Some atheists divine correctly that what religion provides for human beings is comfort. And then, in a way that can feel a bit adolescent, they feel impelled to say, essentially, comfort, that's for babies. But humans, a subset of which includes all atheists, are babies, however old and intellectual and cynical they grow. No matter how adult and controlled we seem on the surface, underneath we are a hive of wailing, impulsive, immediate need. I'm happy to admit to my own babyishness, this may be because, or rather why, I am a comedian. Much comedy is just that, stripping away the facade of adulthood. We are all winging adulthood, truly. There's only one adult in the world whose age in his soul lines up with the age he in fact is, and his name is Michael Gove. <laughs> I am flawed and shallow and scared and often desperately in need of comfort, both psychological and physical. I'm also someone, however, with enough self-awareness to perceive these as urges rather than as ideas. My thinking self, in other words, is distinct from my urgent one. Not all the time. I often find myself thinking, I must eat now or I will die, even when it's only 11 in the morning. But I'm conscious, even as I think that, that this isn't a logical way to understand the world or even the phenomenon of feeling peckish. I know, even as I experience desire, that it is desire and that desire provides no frame for reality. The God desire should not have to lead to the God delusion. Yet the desire is real. For me, it is the very intensity of it which alerts me to the fact of fantasy. The need to imagine that there is an exit door, somewhere through which to escape constantly oncoming death, is one that I can confidently predict exists within the deep recesses of most humans. And the pressure of that desire has always and will always lead to divine projection. People talk a lot about what it means to be human, about what separates us from the animals. Some of that is lyrical, love and empathy and stuff. I personally think it could be pinned down to the fact that we are the only animals who feel shame in defecating. But whether it makes us human or not, 
We are the only animal that from an early age, six in my case, in Dollis Hill, is aware of the inevitability of death. So it is impossible to look at the repetitive creation of legends across every culture and throughout history, which in one way or another outsmart death and promise immortality, without concluding that God is a projection of a very fundamental desire within, within us for it not to be so inevitable. Thanks. Um, thank you. So that's essentially what it's about. Right. So there is so much that I want to unpack. And let me first start with the desire idea. Um, so desiring things isn't normally proof that those things don't exist. So, yeah. so there's the C.S. Lewis... You on the floor <laughs> very this, quickly. Well, there's the C.S. Lewis argument. argument. Yeah, so, so we, we, we desire... Well, um, children desire... We desire food. Food exists. We desire sex. Sex exists. Mm. Tell me about what. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Some. yeah. Um, tell me about. Am I misunderstanding? Like a. No. Well, well, so so, I'll come back to C.S. Lewis in a minute, and maybe you can explain to me that because I don't exactly know what he said. But I've written this book. So there's a few things, by the way, that are just wrong in this book. So dark matter. There is evidence for it. I, I wrote that. No copy editor said that's wrong. So, <laughs> uh, like, what am I paying these people for? So there is evidence for dark matter. Uh, there's gravitational effects and radiational effects. It's not completely wrong because uh, essentially we know those effects. We just don't know what it is. We don't know what causes exactly those effects. So we've called it dark matter. So there is essentially the point kind of stands. And the other thing is that a few people have said to me, my dog definitely looks embarrassed while having a shit. So <laughs> that point is wrong too, right? Uh, but I was, I was writing the book and I, I was meeting with a friend of mine, the very brilliant writer, Jonathan Safran Fur. And, and he just said to me, yeah, that's not right. Is it? If you want something, it can exist. And the examples you give are more or less the examples he gave. And that's right. Uh, I guess what I think is that uh, and, uh, you know, is that the things that you want that can exist are things that we have existential evidence for. So then I have to do have to fall back on the evidence part of the argument, which I don't like to. Uh, and that is, you know, I want water. There is water. There is something I can call water. And only really God feels to me like a thing that is there is no existential evidence for that is very fervently desired, that the existence of is very fervently desired and confirmed as an actual thing that exists, or certainly throughout history, in different forms, it does exist. I also guess what, what I think is, and what this is very important, is that the, the book suggests that death is just one of the things, it's at the centre of it, but it's just one of the things that the God desire helps to sort of deal with. Uh, there's also meaninglessness, there's also the idea that we want justice in the world. God storifies life. Uh, the, the, he storifies the idea that our lives isn't just chaos, that it has an arc, a narrative, that it's going somewhere, that it's witnessed. And also, I should say that God, in terms of the patriarchal traditional thing, is not just what I'm talking about. He, that person or that idea is important, but I say in the book that many, many things, I think, represent that, represent the thing that we crave that will take our lives away from the mundane and the immediate and the quotidian, and that would include football sometimes, or celebrities, or uh, at the end of the book I talk about the Queen and how her death seemed to me to be absolutely an example of our craving for something greater than ourselves that is somehow magical. Um, I now can't remember what... Oh, yeah. So your question is right, that obviously we can want things and those things can exist. 
I'm trying in the book, and I think this maybe is why some believers do like it, to do something which I think most atheists don't do, because most atheists are a bit macho and a bit arrogant, it seems to me, in their atheism, and they refuse to admit to the fears and the terror. Like Bertrand Russell said, when I die, my body and my ego shall rot. Uh, and I agree with that. That's going to happen to all of us. He's right about that. But then he says, but I scorn those. I scorn them, those who would shiver at the thought of oblivion. And I think, what's that about? Such a strange word, scorn. It implies that Bertrand is too lofty and too important, in a way, to be troubled by fear and anxiety at the thought of oblivion, which is really a frightening thought. So what I've tried to do in the book is say, no, I really feel these things too, and the pressure of that feeling leads me to believe that the creation of something that could deal with it is very, very pressing in the human psyche, which is, in a kind of depressive way, I guess why I don't believe it. Yeah, so I think that's one of the things I found most helpful in the book, this, the kind of honesty and vulnerability, I think. Yeah, um, the vulnerability is the key. Yeah, hearing from an atheist. So Theos started at the kind of height of the new atheist movement where all these kind of macho guys, Dawkins, Dennett, etc., talking about how religion had no place in public life um, and was obviously for babies and, and stupid. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm really interested in your, what atheism looks like to you kind of day to day because is not the kind of logical... Um, conclusion agnosticism because we don't know I think there's a point in your book where you say I know God doesn't exist like I know the stone is hard or, or something yeah. like that why not agnosticism? agnosticism? Well I say, I say I know God does exist like I know that stone is hard and I then later on in the book where I talk about quantum physics say that yeah. stone is not hard yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and some of the Christ new Jewish, type Jewish, of belief systems uh, and Jewish, the sort of more Jewish, kind of cosmic ones and less traditional ones often use quantum physics about which there's quite a lot in the book to suggest there are many things beyond this realm that we do not know I just feel and that's true I just feel that those might not be God um, I, I should mention I, don't, I think this will help me to answer your question but it's a slight digression so one of the things I noticed about the new atheists is that they aren't all but a lot of them are kind of white Christian men and I think that as a Jew, an atheist Jew, there are things about the religion, even though I don't believe it, that are impossible to disentangle from my identity. And I think, it was, I think it's impossible for someone like Richard Dawkins to sort of understand that. I think it's impossible in a way for Richard Dawkins uh, to understand why when he is dissing Islam, for example, that feels to a Muslim like an attack on their identity in a way that it might also do to a Christian, but not in quite the same way, because within the society that Dawkins exists, Christians are not a persecuted minority. And Jews, as a persecuted minority, will always feel that. Can I read a little bit, a tiny bit more that perhaps makes that clear? So I talk in the book about, again, about the thing about like how I am as an atheist Jew and how a lot of that is a bit ironic with Larry David or whatever or the rabbi story. But then there's a bit where I get quite serious and I say sometimes the irony falls away. A friend of mine, a man of science, an atheist, whose son died tragically young, sung Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for the dead, at the funeral. This is what it means in English. Magnified and sanctified be your name, O God, throughout the world, which you have created according to your will. May your great name be blessed forever and ever. It goes on like that. The usual stuff of prayer, the endless OCD-like repetition of praise, the desperate hope that if you say something enough times, a fragment might get through the ether. I do not find it moving, but the Hebrew, 
Yit gadal v'yit kadash shemei rabah. Or rather, the Hebrew, I've written it here, because the sound in my mind carries the association of the script of the ancient hieroglyphic, which because I had to learn it at my Jewish primary school I can still read, you don't have to know what it means. At the burial of a son, those words, just the sound, the ancient music, the sonic pain of them, connects you, the atheist Jew praying and the atheist Jew listening, with centuries of tradition and suffering and defiance. I know I would do the same in my friend's terrible place. And I go on to say that when uh, the Jews left, I, I, I was watching Simon Sharma talk about this in the story of the Jews. The Jews were exiled from Spain, as you probably know, in 1492. They were exiled from this country before that, from 300 years. And Sharma talks about how you might hear, as they leave Spain, the sound of them on the boats leaving, the sound of the Shema, which is the Lord's Prayer. And he's right about something there that I cannot help but find moving, which is the expression of Jewish survival is always going to be the religion. And I thought we'll always find that moving because my mum was born in Nazi Germany and most of my family was murdered, yeah. right? So I think on that side. So I can't, but I can't dismiss the religion because I know that there will be people going into those gas chambers as well, saying the same prayers. And so for me, that's partly why I've written this book, which is to say I understand what this means, even if I don't believe it. Yeah, so, so what I understand is you, it, it's meaningful, can provide significance in people's lives without having to believe in the thing that you don't think exists, which is God. I don't believe in the supernatural part of it. I sort of believe in the identity part of it. And actually, that's, that's core in Judaism itself, isn't it? It's not, it, when you're talking about kind of people who believe in God, this is probably where I kind of diverge. Um, Judaism doesn't have this kind of sense of an afterlife or people going to heaven or um, some other place when you die. It's very much about the here and now. It's about the people. It's about the identity. It, uh, and I think um, my understanding of Christianity is also the, the same. I think there are kind of various sects within Christianity, um, particularly kind of later kind of evangelicalism, which has this idea of this um, Become a Christian, then you'll go to heaven, right? It's all about uh, getting Reward. out of death free. Yeah. Um, but actually, Christianity itself is, you know, in the earliest centuries, it was described as a death cult. You know, there's in the in the kind of funeral ceremony of the Church of England, it's this idea of ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yeah. You're made from dust to dust, you shall return. Yeah. There are cemeteries within um, churchyards. So actually, my understanding of Christianity is actually it's about facing death. That death is a full stop. Um, it's not all about the kind of what happens okay. after. And that's clear, that's clear within Judaism as well, isn't it? Like, as, well, as, in, as in... Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, I, without getting too theological about it, and you will know much more about it than I do, but I think that... Uh, I talk about it in the book about what I call the sort of commercial success of Christianity. And what I do by that is that Christ Judaism, which isn't a proselytizing religion anyway, but the reason that Judaism is not as successful a religion as Christianity is that Christianity has all sorts of things that service the God desire better. For a start, it has a man who is a God, which is like a superhero uh, and someone you can empathize with and someone you can feel is like you and you can feel his pain 
Judaism doesn't really have that figure. It has a sort of formless burning bush figure who's always cross about something, right? Uh, and uh, it doesn't have a very clear idea of the afterlife. That's absolutely true. And I think there's a reason for that. Uh, although, obviously, Christians were also persecuted for a very, very long time. But it has been the dominant religion in the West for a long time. Whereas Judaism, I would say, and some Orthodox Jews really hate me saying this, but I think it is the case, that Orthodox Judaism is like a type of OCD. I've mentioned it before. Because it's the 613 mitzvot in Judaism. Mitzvot are all the little things that you're meant to do if you're an Orthodox Jew. You're supposed to put on tefillin every day, which is a little black box with little um, sort of like uh, stuff you wind round it. You're supposed to keep, not eat this, to eat that. You're not meant to carry things on Shabbat. You're not meant to you know, do all sorts of things. Although in this particular area, there's a thing called an Erev, uh, where you put stuff up on posts and you can do all those things just within that time, which is just a ridiculous get-out clause in Hampstead Garden fucking suburb. But <laughs> mainly, it's just a tiny thing. And what, I, what is tiny little microcosms of things? And what I think that is, is indicative psychologically, in a mass psychology way, of a community constantly under threat. Because what do small, tiny things do? Uh, that you're constantly doing. They make you feel that maybe you're going to be okay in the here and now. They're going to make you think you're in control and that, yeah, exactly, a control and that you're not going to be immediately destroyed if you keep doing these things. And actually, I do know someone who sort of proved that for me. It's not, this, isn't, this isn't in the book. But there's a guy called Shalom Auslander who wrote a brilliant book, brilliantly called Foreskin's Lament. And in, for, in I'm sorry, uh, and in Foreskin's Lament, he talks about leaving Monzi, which is a very religious Jewish community in New York, and marrying out. And he said that one of the consequences of having been brought up like that and then marrying out is that he basically walks down the road now and he wants to do all those things and feels that if he doesn't, something terrible will happen to him in the here and now, immediately. So it's not that thing of hell in the future. It's an immediate thing. Interesting. Oh, gosh, fascinating. I could talk about this for hours. But we are in the context, in the UK at least, of the census figures came out last year. Um, less than half of the population described themselves as Christian. Fewer people feel part of a um, religious group. And they're, they're kind of mixed figures about belief in God, aside from the kind of um, religious identity. If religion is about, or theism is about, terror management, yeah. then why, why don't more people, why aren't more people atheists? Okay, so I'm not sure about the figures. Uh, I mean, I say in the book, uh, am I just shooting fish in a barrel here because surely God's over, but he, he, if I can say he again, or all these various narratives that service the God desire are not over. I mean, 80% of the world's population do still believe in God. Uh, as far as I understand it, the one thing you cannot be, and we've seen a man who is terrible, a terrible, terrible person, be president of the United States, but the one thing that you cannot be if you want to be president of the United States is a self-proclaimed atheist. That's like the one thing that you're not allowed to say. Donald Trump can do all sorts. Of, Donald Trump can be a rapist, and people will still vote for him, but not if he said, I don't believe in God, which is kind of extraordinary, right? Um, and it, it, it seems to me that many, many people now, particularly with the bifurcation of what belief is, believe in versions of God, even if they don't believe in the traditional version of God. And I, I personally think conspiracy theory is a version of the God desire. Because what conspiracy theory does is it allows you to believe many things that God does, that the world is controlled, that the world has some kind of order, that it may have an evil order, but that somehow or other good will triumph eventually if enough people understand the truth. These are all religious concepts, it seems to me. So I, I agree with you that maybe 
you know, church going obviously is not what it used to be, although it obviously is in different parts of the world. Uh, and But it seems to me that religion still counts for a lot. And also, you know, Putin thinks that what he's doing in the Ukraine is a God-given mission, right? People are always still bringing God into the argument to justify their behaviour and often very, very extreme and serious international behaviours. Right. Um, you can read more about lots of this stuff in my own book called God is Not a White Man. Uh, which Definitely is gonna raise, that. There's a whole chapter on Trump. So, uh, Who is that? Yeah, um, okay. not, not a fan of his. Um, <laughs> you surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess final question from me. What did you hope um, to achieve in writing the book? I'm interested in, you talk about Frank Skinner a lot, who is a, a devout Catholic. Yeah. Um, how has he received the book? <laughs> what, are you, how, what are your conversations like with him? Um, well, those are two different yeah, questions. Two questions. But, but uh, let me—I'll finish with the second, with the first question. So, with Frank, the re reason I put a lot of Frank in the book is that Frank's obviously one of my closest friends, and he is a very devout Catholic who believes in the literal truth of the Bible. And when I first met Frank, there's a story in the book about this. Uh, we were on a long car journey from one gig to another, and he told me about how he was in spiritual anguish. He used those words because. Uh, as a Catholic, well, the problem was he had, was divorced, but the church doesn't recognise divorce, and he was uh, sleeping with his new partner, but that's adultery in the church, and so therefore he couldn't go to confession, because when you go to confession, you have to say you won't commit your sin again in order to get absolution, and Frank wasn't very keen on not having sex with his girlfriend, and his girlfriend might have been keen, I don't know. Uh, but. Either way, at the end of this, uh, he said, so I can't get absolution, I can't take communion. And I said, sorry, why are you bothered about all that? And he said, no, you don't understand. I think I will burn in hellfire because of this. And I'd never heard anyone say anything like that seriously because I don't live in 1603, right? <laughs> but what it made me think, because I had already become friendly with Frank, I thought, well, this bloke's incredibly intelligent, he's incredibly funny, we're very simpatico in many other ways. I actually find it more interesting that he believes this stuff. I obviously don't believe it, but I believe that social media, this was before social media, but social media has conditioned us in a very bad way to think in binary opposition terms, to think about who you are in terms of who you hate. And who you hate tends to be people who think differently from you. Now, I think Frank thought completely differently from me on this subject, but that made him someone who I could talk to about it, and we could have lots of chats about it, and it would be a brilliant thing added to the texture of our relationship. So for me, you know, that was a, a really interesting thing. Having said that, he hasn't read the book. And uh, when I asked him why he hadn't read the book, what he said was, is, well, I read Jews Don't Count, and I do find your writing very persuadable. So, <laughs> So clearly, uh, he doesn't want to be persuaded. Uh, so I don't know, it's a really interesting thing because some religious people, like yourself, very kindly, have, have, have thought the book is, speaks to religious people. I would hope it does at some level, even though obviously it's informed by a, a conviction in the non-existence of God, but it is not like a standard atheist book. It's very not like the God delusion. There is complexity, there are different ideas, it's about interrogating those ideas and thinking about them uh, and having conversations like this. So we're actually also really glad that we were able to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Um, really love the book. The thing we love about it is that it is a household name who speaks in 
English that people can understand in an accessible way talking about theology. So thank you for writing The God Desire. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.